Right, so I'm, I'm back this time on a Zoom call with Matthew Trenhill. Thanks again, Matthew. Uh, your, your original Betting People interview went down uh, really well, and we've got a whole slew of questions that uh, people have uh, set. So if you're, uh, as there's so many, if you're ready, without any further ado, we'll just crack on. Uh, first yeah, of all, uh, Ferguson Grant, Fergie, sent me uh, six questions via... Um, Messenger. So I'll start on these first of all because people want to see these. Uh, first of all, will the Inside Betting podcast be returning? Never say never, but it is unlikely. And I think part of the problem for me was that I wanted the content to be completely non time specific, really. I didn't want to do tips or previews or anything like that. I wanted to do, I suppose, general purpose betting information. And one thing I found is that every day or every week, at least, I'm kind of picking up new information and, and new stuff. And the consequence is that um, I become angry about stuff that now becomes outdated. And I think I'm, I'm too lazy to re-record the podcast or edit it. So there's things now where I think like the good example, I think the best example one was the staking episode I did. And there's already several other things that I wanted to add to that now. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to be completely done with these. And I don't want to be in that, this is tragic, but I don't want to be in that situation where someone comes up to me at ice in the year's time and says, you idiot, like, you know, it doesn't work like that. And I'll be like, oh, I know that now, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I didn't at the time I was recording the podcast. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I hope to make more appearances on shows like your own um, and so on. But um, I don't think that me putting out my own stuff is likely in the near future anyway. Okay, uh, next question from him is, Does he rec do you recommend any articles or books within the gambling space? Not many is the truth. Um, vast majority of my personal education has come through uh, university white papers um, that I've found over the years via either JSTOR or Google Scholar or one of the other uh, places they're kept. And, you know, often very generic search terms such as sport forecasting, sport predictions, these kind of things. That generally tends to be the best source of my knowledge. Um, I find that if you really want to work into the mechanics of, they're almost better for bookmakers than punters a little bit, I think. But, you know, I think there's a lot of value for betters as well as Joseph Bogdahl's series of books. Um, I think a lot of people feel like Joseph doesn't give you like the keys to the city, like of how to make instant money. But I think there's so much to learn within those books. I'm currently three quarters of the way through his latest one. Um, and there's just so much information within there. That, you know, he's, he's written an entire book about Monte Carlo simulation, essentially. It's a decent sized book. And yet there's so much information for those people who really want to get into the nitty gritty um, that are valuable. I mean, just the section he does on the US election where he talks about how um, the sub derivative markets so the state by state markets which is generally where sharp money is um aggregated as a better predictor of the to win the presidential election market than the actual presidential election market is itself just like to some people what i've just said may sound utterly boring but to me his series of books are, are very much what i like reading um i recently read um conquering risk by Elio I think that's how you pronounce his name, um, who was a prominent contributor on the SBR forum as Justin Seven, I think it is. And uh, he also works as a consultant for Pinnacle for a time. Uh, that book is good. The financial trading stuff I 
is not great in my opinion but the sports stuff is interesting and especially interesting for those who want to get a window into us sports and the conversions between different spread lines and total lines i think he does a good job on that um and probably my favorite book at the moment is not specifically betting but um so jack swagger does the market wizards books and his most recent one which i think might be called unknown market wizards he basically talks to a lot of um essentially prop traders um who you wouldn't have heard not warren buffett's of the world these are not big hedge fund managers necessarily um but people who are traded and the parallels between what they're doing and betting is very clear to me and it's really interesting and it even has an interview what i find also an interview with a financial trader there who's uh i think he's a czech republic guy and he has an enormous edge seemingly he does all the metrics on his trading history long trade like 10 year trading career or something like that and he's absolutely rocket scientist and yet he insists on just trading the amount to make uh, the amount he needs to live like makes like 30,000 euros a year or whatever and it's like it because i find one of the funny things about betting is you'll often hear the story if the guy was so good why is he not making infinite money and retiring and there are a lot of different people in the world a lot of different risk attitudes and mentalities but i found that a really interesting interview within that book so that's there'll be new stuff always that comes to mind but those are the things that recently i've been reading that i've enjoyed okay uh it's third question views on a minimum bet law and the odds on it happening in the uk i see you means so i love the intent behind minimum bet law it's not the way i would do it so i think the moment you post a minimum bet law you create a ceiling so if you say later lose 2k it means that everyone then completely pivots their products and offering around that unlikely and if they do move above 2k for certain high profile races they'll feel anchored towards that 2k so something they could offer 10k later lose they'll offer five just because they psychologically anchored towards this limit. Um, my personal preference for a rule or law, legislation, whatever you want to call it, would be all customers have to receive the same limits, the same prices on a given event. So if you want to lay to lose 100 quid, well, there's going to be another bookmaker who's going to outcompete you. If you want to offer huge margins, there's going to be a bookmaker who's going to outcompete you. The only rule is every customer gets the same product. I remember when they introduced the later lose laws in Australia, there were horrible stories of people logging in and they would have two people logged into the same site side by side. And one saw a book of like 3% a runner and one saw a book of 1% a runner and stuff like that. It's like, that's horrendous in my opinion. But yeah, all I would ask is that everyone is treated equally. And I think the moment you have to offer the same limits to everyone, it makes bookmakers think more creatively, more dynamically. So should I raise my limits as we get closer to post or kickoff, whatever it is? You know, can I offer World Cup at 500K? But, you know, maybe I should only be offering, like I've been offering, you know, Albanian second league at like to lose a K. Is, is that the right strategy? Maybe should we lose 250 for all I know? You know, maybe it's not that. People are get very much trapped in this middle range. And the reality is, is that embedding, the range should vary massively between opening price and closing. And the range should also vary massively between different qualities of events or other different quality of price, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, so the, the minimum bet laws, I don't think really encourage creative thinking for bookmakers. And I, I think they're also hard to get it feels to tell people you've got to, to risk you this has to be your risk appetite that is what you must have the risk appetite for in order to be a bookmaker 
doesn't feel right. Whereas the idea of treat everyone the same, that appeals to me. Okay, so this is, I'll, I'll go back to some more of uh, Grant's in a bit. Uh, this is from Anthony Kaminskis. Uh, which gamblers have you dealt with that you admire most and why? I don't think it's right to share names, unfortunately, um, specifically. Um, I can say how I know them and, and what they do, I guess. But um, I think if, you go th if I go through my career mentally, I can think of different people who I've particularly admired. So one would have been uh, the trader who was in charge of cricket um, in my first spread betting job. And cricket was very important for spread betting. It was a really big market for the city. Um, and he was incredibly smart and, you know, really understood betting markets, knew horse racing, the greyhounds, incredible dogs, you know, pricer, um, but knew cricket brilliantly. Um, I don't think it's unfair to him, if you ever listen to this, that he was not a huge punter in size, but the diligence, he just never half-assed it, ever. You know, if he was going to have a bet on a race, he'd price it up without looking at the prices first, factor in everything. It was like, I... I'm so impatient and I'm basically lazy just watching him do this. That sort of said to me, like, and his, you know, if you had his long term, you know, yield on his bets, you know, we're talking a massive percent, you know, he's an incredible margin winner. Um, and it sort of showed me that, yeah, to be cavalier about stuff um, was, you know, just, you know, plot it carefully. And then you can have big bets if you've really gone through the motions of making sure you've got a good price. Um, and then I would say, um, undoubtedly, the the, the owner of um, well, the joint owner of Gambit Research, who I had the pleasure of working with while I was at Mustard Systems doing golf betting. Um, again, longevity here is, you know, he's been making fortunes in the betting industry for several decades now, and seemingly always adapts, always evolving even if that means moving into businesses outside of sports betting, but applying the same principles of attributing value to certain things and so on. He undoubtedly is one of the most, and I remember having conversations with him where I would quite often <laughs> throw out something that was maybe a bit off the cuff, like, oh, blatantly it should be like this. And he would pause, he'd have a think about it. And he'd say, oh, do you think maybe it'd be like this? And I'd be like, I'd, I would go, oh, okay. Three days later, I'd be sat there thinking, thinking, shit, yeah, he's got it just right. That's exactly the way it should be. And, you know, just to sort of have that level of instinctual knowledge of how to optimize uh, your risk reward and, you know, how to approach any, any betting, all betting markets to someone at that level become almost the same, whether it's the presidential election, you know, Cheltenham Gold Cup, Rugby World Cup, you name it. Instinctively knowing which side the sharp money is going to be gravitating towards, you know, he was yeah an incredible person to work with um i suppose those um you know th those are two examples i've got i've got plenty really but i don't want to use up the, <laughs> the whole uh, q a with it but th those are those are two good examples okay this um, is from uh, sorry carry yeah. on no no okay uh, this is from uh, lee horton who'd like to know how many genuine professional gamblers in brackets not arbors does he think there are in the uk and what sports does he think they play um, so one thing we must establish, obviously, is that, uh, 
generally by virtue of often taking best price, you are an arbor in terms of you have placed a bet that was in a market that was the state of arbitrage. Um, so I assume when he runs to remove arbors, he means people who don't take any risk, basically, or match betters, sort of people back and then lay straight away on Betfair, or people who just always lock in the amount. So and I assume then for he's talking about professional gamblers who come up with their own prices and bet to them or have a methodology or system that they, is proprietary to them that they use. And in terms of professional, well, it's funny, I had a discussion with someone the other day as to what point do you consider yourself a professional gambler? And he said, um, you've got to have been making money at it for three, it's got to be your sole source of income for three years. And I said, okay, why three years specifically? And he said, because no one has the patience to put away more than two years worth of living expenses before going pro. So if you've made it for three years, by definition, you must be effectively a professional gambler. So how many of those people that meet all the criteria I've just described, you know, I keep thinking the number must be tiny, like, you know, less than, the th you know, less than, the th less than 500. And then I seem to meet time and time again, people who are in a period, at least in their lives, where they're making it pay. They may have been making it pay for, you know, five years or even 10 years. So... I kind of, <laughs> it's kind of impossible for me to put a number on, really. Um, you know, and if you go on Twitter, it would seem that most of Britain is, is a pro punter. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to, it's really hard to make a call. One thing I do think is completely underestimated is the number of people out there who you don't hear about, who are just making a reasonable side income, betting small, just by doing their due diligence. You know, I know these people exist simply because they were the people that we prayed we would be able to get us to ring up before we opened up the horse racing odds and they would have their 25, 50 quid bets, knock us into shape and then release the odds. Those people exist out there. They could be like in their 50s, 60s, watching horse racing their entire life. And you wouldn't call them pro punters because they're not doing it for a living. But if they scaled, you could consider them a professional gambler. And I think there's more of those than we think. But yeah, I, I, it's really hard for me to put a number on it, you know. Okay, like I'd, I say, yeah. Uh, Michael would like to know what are the softest markets to bet into horse racing and outside of the obvious dirty inch ways and enhanced place terms for novice punters? I mean, it, I think you know, people always talk about specialization with horse racing there's too much horse racing to sort of cover everything um and i guess one of the obvious small groups was always like two-year-old racing generally was sort of like the the area um i'm gonna say and you can you can look at this for yourself what is interesting is if you look at i don't know if you're familiar with uh, adrian massey's website but he allows you to run a load of like queries on historical betfair data to betfair sp and one thing I will say is that National, National Hunt Flat is not efficient yet. That is a fact. National Hunt Flat by Syndicate, by Bet for SP closing, is definitely not efficient. So I would definitely be targeting that personally if I was someone who was looking to not have to try and swallow the whole of racing whole and just look at a certain area to target. And yeah, that would be my the fact that it's not yet efficient properly on Betfair suggests that even if you're banned at other places, you can potentially bet on the exchanges and, and have a good crack at it. Okay, Matthew, I'll go back to one of uh, Grant Ferguson's uh, questions again. He's interested to hear your views on closing line value. 
Um, so I, I don't want to talk about it in terms of like, can you be not raw, like the debate around closing line value, it seems generally is can one be a winning better without having it? So do you need market validation that you're right in order to be a winner long term? Um, I would say that if you're using the exact same methodology as the people who dictate where the market goes, you need to be getting closing line value because by definition, if you're using the same methods, but not getting the same final prices that they're causing, then if they're the ones that move the market, the market's generally reasonably educated over time on average and knows who's worth, whose money is worth most, then chances are you failing. So if you build, you know, if you're, you know, building a speed ratings because you want to bet at Southern and you know full well that a lot of professional punters who bet on the all weather and like long-term Southern, you know, was a classic place to be able to do your own stopwatch work and, you know, get a good speed rating for an advantage. If you're doing that same methodology and you weren't getting closing line value versus the Betfair SB, I'd be concerned. Definitely, I'd be like thinking it's unlikely that I have factored in all the elements. It's, what are the likelihood that there are 10 guys who are expert at using speed ratings on all weather and they shape the final odds of that market? What are the odds that I am better than all of them, you know, at doing this? Now, if by contrast, um, you know, you had gone really, really into, say, uh, dosage, and you'd be like, okay, I've got this best web rating, you know, US bred horses, performed better at Southern historically, you know, I don't think dosage is often considered to be like witchcraft and nonsense by some people, other people think it's, you know, very good, but it tends to be very out of fashion at the moment. And so from my perspective, it's um, like, what is the chance that all of that information is in the closing line? I certainly would want to give myself a longer spin at that before concluding that I was onto the wrong thing. Um, a great example that, again, Joseph McDowell gave in this book was this tennis tipster that's known on, on Twitter called Nishikori um, and doesn't seemingly have closing line value and yet has made money at pinnacle odds for a prolonged period of time. And the argument I have there is that, well, this, generally the closing prices in tennis will be dictated by people who bet sort of big volume systematically across a lot of matches. And they'll be using very much machine learning or these kind of methodologies to get server percentages. They plug into a model that then create prices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if Nishikori instead is just watching every single bit of tape that's ever been on every tennis player and making up this guy's not, you know, not feeling it, or this guy's not really at the races. Will that ever be reflected? It, it would, the only way that that would be reflected is if Nishikori could find him and several other punters who are equally good at this, had a massive bankroll between them, and they basically crushed the stats men fully out of the market over time. That is, you know, unless he can, you know, so quite often, you know, he'll find himself getting closing line value sometimes because, you know, he's got the same way as the stats men, and other times not. And people say to me, like, well, surely if he's that good, he will impact the market. And it's like, you know, would you rather stake your odds movement on one guy who you can't really understand why he's winning, but you know he's good, or 90% of the body of volume that you're like, well, I know exactly what they do. I've been to their offices. They're smart as you like. You know, there's a good reason that they make money every year. I'm going to have to treat him as the, the cost of doing business and them as the people that shape the market. So closing line value, you know, I would say 
good example again uh, there was a period where you could get humidity for baseball grounds and humidity was a big factor for totals in baseball and for a year the totals seemingly uh, did not respond to the groups who were betting heavily this element and they made a killing and then people found out what it was so there, there can be no there can be points for having no closing line value it just means you get to have bigger bets on and you're right and if you spot those spots you're really having a wonderful time um, you know, so whenever there's something new that comes into the market that people are slow to adopt, I mean, I imagine I, I don't do any in-running racing betting myself and never have done, but I imagine when the drones first kicked in, there must have been, like, although there's closing line in live is very tricky to calculate, you can ask bookmakers that, um, you know, it's one of those things where a new technology comes in that some people are privy to, who are, you know, the market will resist them because they're like, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to resist them because new stuff normally gets harvested by the smart people and then after a while they're like nope i'm the one getting harvested here i better adapt and move on basically um so yeah clv undoubtedly you know if you're betting into well-established markets which are very liquid and the methodology is pretty much you no know, you can find an infinite number of football papers you know english football you know about how it's done how modeling is done you know i would say i would almost certainly want at those top levels to get closing line value because you know, I, it's unlikely that I'm betting into a market where I've come up with something completely new and different. But, you know, would I need to have closing line value on the Winter Olympics going on at the moment? Absolutely not. I would not feel any need to have that whatsoever. Okay, now this is from John, who's at BetWinners123. There's a bit of a rant about the, um, we've already covered, you know, the minimum bet example. But he says for Go Go for example, why is it necessary to restrict punters when there's 156 triers all off for their lives What's the problem? Um, well, the funny thing about golf is you get a better run at golf, actually, than you would do uh, if you're betting horses, that's for sure, or uh, current bookmakers. Um, that I've observed with certain groups at the moment who are betting big, uh, they're definitely getting a larger run out on, on golf. But, you know, I, I would say that there is no reason why you can't find a limit that you can lay everyone absolutely at, you know, give them the same prices and give them the same bet size. No problem. I, I, do, I don't think there is an example. The idea that 100, so 156 triers, it's not necessarily the trying. You know, it's not a question of like, you know, how straight is the event, I suppose. Um, one thing you must remember is that adverse selection plays a huge role here in that you can put up your 156 best prices. You know, you think, I've really got the best effort here. And, the, you know, smart people will pick out the 10 out of the 156 that you're wrong on. That's, that's just the way it goes. Um, and one thing I will think is that a lot of people seem to think that golf books are more like balanced than they realize. Like I've seen many a golf book with good sized bookmakers, you know, who take genuine amount of golf bets, but it's incredibly concentrated in sort of 10 players. So it feels like you're basically praying for one of the non big backed runners to win. Um, and so, yeah, the idea of shaping books that are very lopsided, I mean, anyone knows, like, I think bookmakers is that in multi-way, so horse racing, greyhounds, you know, golf, if you just have a few bombs sat in the book and everything else is good, it, it's very hard. You feel like you're flipping coins against people at that point. So it's more a case of like, and then people say, like, oh, just push the prices out. You'll get more business. And it's like, it's weird. You know, it's quite often you can push certain players out. And the only bets you'll get is when you push them past some clever model's number 
and then you take a bet and you ask yourself, do you want to take the bet? But the idea that you'll collectively push players out and you'll get, you know, Joe Bloggs just having his tenors in, that doesn't happen because people don't tend to bet basis price sensitivity on average. The way to improve the quality of multi-way books for bookmakers is almost as if more people were price sensitive and then pushing a price out would guarantee you some betting, some bets from, you know. Okay. Genuine Joes, I guess. Um, but yeah, so yeah, it's it's not it's not I've experienced with golf, it's it's not particularly easy. But I, I completely agree, you know, I, I everyone should get the same bet and you should be able to set a decent limit on golf, I think. Okay, now FOG or FOG, I'm not sure which it is, is interested in hedging. He says, do bookies, I'm assuming he means the big bookies like you've worked for in the past, do they hedge into the exchange? Um, which markets are they most likely to hedge on? Uh, I understand that mostly they just let bets run and accept the variance, but are there situations where they will want to hedge more? Well, I assume he means more. Um, well, first of all, to thank FOG for his Chrome widget, which is uh, was very good, very nice. little plug from there. Um, and uh, do they hedge? Yes. I mean, I, I think probably some people have even shown screens of this, but you can see um, on-course bookmaker screens, and there used to be one company that worked particularly with BetDAC. So once upon a time, BetDAC was the predominant on-course bookmaker's hedging medium, um, and that was where BetDAC managed to secure a large percentage of its volume for horse racing. Um, there has been, over the recent years, a company that's more linked to Betfair, I believe, um, that has encroached massively, I believe, on the market share, although COVID's been a bit, obviously, on course, but making was a different animal. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's the options. This software generally gives you the options to sort of green up your book or, you know, adjust your book accordingly. And I think for people, you know, who are, you know, don't, you know, don't have many courses they have or many pitches, the ability to reduce the variance because they've got mortgages and families to feed, etc., um, definitely on-course bookmakers are, are hedging into the exchanges, no doubt. Um, big corporate bookmakers, fine. it depends whether there's ever been a culture of it, really. So I, I find it very unlikely that Bet365, I've never heard of people saying that Bet365 has ever hedged anything ever. Um, by contrast, I have heard over the years that um, pre-Flutter days, I suppose Paddy Power used to hedge at times, I think. Um, particularly large, you know, large liabilities. Um, again, that can just be a case of, you know, reducing, uh, reducing, I suppose, annual performance variance. When you get, the funny thing is, is the moment you have shareholders, that's probably the time that you actually benefit most reducing because um, money flows, getting people to buy your shares, generally you need to have as minimal variance as you can. So in reality, it's the big, floated companies that will probably benefit most from it, but the kind of positions they have to hedge those, they'll just get terrible value hedging them mostly. And if there was a company that went to them saying, would you like to hedge with us? You can guarantee that they're not giving them a good deal. So I, I don't think um, outside of small bookmakers, you know, your small online presence, when I say small online, we're talking like a WhatsApp number, a Skype and a, a website with these numbers on it. Those people I'm almost certain will be um, hedging slash following in their customers, this kind of stuff. But um, I think by and large, you know, any any bookmaker that gets over a critical mass, um, yeah, just just doesn't do it, I would say. Um, offshore in America, so like the Costa Rican kind of um, Caribbean market, there used to be a lot of cross-book hedging. I'm not really sure how much that actually goes on anymore, to be honest. 
um, but they definitely used to uh, offload liabilities to each other. Um, and in Asia, you kind of got a situation where people would spread. So like, let's say someone hit the market with like a massive position on a team that would end up filtering out across the network, which sort of allowed them all to sort of stay stable and not, you know, no one went to the poor house by themselves, I guess. Okay, now this is from Dennis uh, at Carville's Hill. Did your musings around traders on Betfair being the new cannon fodder mean that we should take market fluctuations as opportunities? And are the inefficiencies now in the movement of odds right up to the off? And this is referencing racing specifically. Yeah, I mean, um, I feel cannon fodder is harsh, but maybe a, I, I feel always the people who've indulged firstly in, in trading, anyone who goes into Betfair and they have strategies or methodologies that don't require you to know what price you're trading around. So they're purely trading money flow or odds movement. Those are the people who can get caught out worst, in my opinion, because it would seem to me that from what I see is all the best money makers on Betfair, syndicates, groups, whatever, they're trading a bit of the market movement, but they're also trading to a fair set of odds that they've set themselves and they trade around that. Whereas if you're you know, backing a horse that's shortening a lot, and you don't know, have any idea in your idea what the price should be. How do you know when you've gone too far or, you know, you're essentially you are reliant entirely on the money flows, the pattern recognition telling you when you're getting value or not. And that is, that, that's not easy, I don't think. So yeah, so cannon fodder maybe, I think those people are, until they learn to be good, those are definitely, you know, and match betters, match betters don't care about the price. And maybe they haven't priced up what the horse should be. They're just like, but make a price bigger than Betfair lay price. You know, so, so un, unpriced, not unpriced, price agnostic, I suppose, betting action will always be the stuff that gets beaten quicker, I would say. Um, yes, movement towards the close of horse risk. I absolutely do think this. I've got, got I've not, certainly not been able to monetize it myself. But I definitely think there is an element of overmove versus. Um, I think the sort of the that late gamble mentality means that, and you have to pick it race by race. So I think there's certain races you look at and be like, how much more information can there be available at this point to get into this market that can move twenty percent, thirty percent of the price? Um, and there's other races where you can look at and you think there's not been much money matched anywhere and. You know, it doesn't look, you know, it looks like a low quality race, etc. Those late moves, I am probably more wary of. Um, but definitely, I, I think, I always think, you know, what's sort of the most uncomfortable bet? Most uncomfortable bet is a big late drifter. Because you think they've, the instinct is, you know, sadly for racing's, racing's reputation is that the horse has nobbled somehow, or it's just, you know, they don't think it's going to try, or whatever it may be, or, you know. And those are the horses that I, I know that I feel awful backing them. So I'm convinced in my mind that, uh, yeah, late big drifters are something which could be, a, could be an angle of sorts. Okay, this is when you picked up on the YouTube for me, Nicole Dumas. Um, can you talk a bit about dark pools, black bets and city bets, please? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I noticed this on, on one of the comments and, uh, and said I didn't, didn't really touch on this. Um, yeah, limited time in the first interview, but I can I can definitely talk about this now. Not entirely sure what he is referring to with black bets, maybe different phrase for something I do know, but dark pools and city bets. So dark pools is um, a, a phrase that kind of an annoys me in a sense, and that 
the dark pool in the financial market sense is basically like hosting a poker game. So you've got someone who wants to host the dark pool, and then there are hopefully in your dark pool sharks and fish. And a shark, by definition, is someone who's just looking to basically, they'll often throw into the dark pool, I want to buy this share at this price. And it's a ludicrously opportunistic, you know, sort of trade they're trying to put in. And sometimes they get matched, they get great value, and sometimes they don't. But they're generally looking to, or sometimes money will come up, and they say, well, that's clearly value. And they're just, they're just price takers in the dark pool, really. Or when they do post a price, it's, it's very, you know, quite wide of the market. And the fish in that situation are the people who want to do a large trade that doesn't appear on the actual exchange books. So people who are watching order flows on financial exchanges can see very large orders being processed as the trades get matched. And so people want to do it off book so they can get a better price. And a lot of these people are doing it for completely just, you know, they're a large pension fund, for example, that needs to buy you know, millions of shares of Vodafone or whatever it may be. And they know that they'll just get a crappy price for the overall customers who, you know, they're doing this for if they just try and lump it all through, you know, quickly on the exchange. So, you know, the idea is, is that banks generally, big investment banks who host these dark pools, they often have just huge volumes of shares swirling around within their ecosystem that they can just match up things ranging from rounding to corporate actions that have come through to these. So the reason why you just have this float of like the, generally the most liquid shares that sort of exist within the bank. And so they're in a situation whereby the person says, you know, you know, I need this many millions of shares, best price kind of thing. And the bank can facilitate. Bank makes good money, customer's happy, everyone works together. You know, so the dark pool in that sense is where there is anonymized. The thing is, is, you don't know who the person, by definition, you don't know who the person is who's put in that order in the dark pool. But generally, you look at the type of order it is. It's like the equivalent in a horse race. If you saw just someone wanting to have a massive lump on the favorite in a very stable race market, you'd be like, okay, chances are that's just a fair bet. In the same way that they can spot, like if someone wants a very small stock and they want to buy a thousand shares well away from the current market price, it's like you look at that, like, no, it's, yeah, it's probably not going to be great for us to match. But um, so dark pools, so in the concept of lots of people contributing to a dark pool in horse racing, well, that's what, that's what an exchange is, right? <laughs> that's anonymized cross-matching, essentially. Um, and the idea that there is private mini exchanges hosted by, you know, groups. I've been in, I've had the dark pool discussion so many times over the years, including people like who really wanted to do a dark pool for bookmakers to hedge into. The idea would be the dark pool would be the anonymized element. So like, you know, if you're Labbrooks or 365 or whoever, and you had a massive position, you could then just put that order into the dark pool and another bookmaker or someone else could say, oh, I'm a bit light on that position. You know, yeah, I'll take it on. The reality of that situation is, is that mostly bookmakers are A, directionally liability-wise similar often because people want to bet the same things by and large if they're in the sort of the square customer category or the other things they want to hedge is things where they're already you know holding red you know they're already holding red money you know so they laid the horse to someone at 21 in the morning and you know they're now like the horse is now five to one and they're trying to hedge it at 20 to one and well no one's going to take the hedge at 20 to one um so what generally the experience has been is that no one basically what people did was they used dark pools to basically have bets themselves 
rather than any actual hedging functionality. Um, so, you know, the closest you get to sort of, I suppose, off, off exchange betting is, you know, you get private layers. That's much more common within something like horse racing. Can be commission agents who sometimes do some private laying, can just be big bettors who've got like, you know, you know you can go to if you want to have a big lump on the horse. And, and sometimes they'll take the bet purely with the view that, particularly with commission agents, because a lot of commission agents don't actually charge commission, they just want the info. So you get these situations where, you know, you've not placed the bet on Betfair, no one can see that you want to back this horse, but you've gone to the private layer, and the private layer gives you your fill, and then it's up to them to like, what am I going to do? Am I just going to lay it? Am I going to try and have some of it back myself? Am I going to have all of it back and some more myself? You know, this kind of thing. So that's sort of the dark the dark pool element, I guess, sort of the off away from trying to conceal off the exchange. And Citibet, Citibet is, I mean, you can just Google Citibet into some regards and just see what people, you know, the illegal, the illegal massive Asian betting exchange that, you know, does X billion a year, this kind of stuff. There's a lot of, uh, there's all these kind of pieces written on it. Um, similar sort of, you know, set up to, to Betfair in terms of like the layout. You can go on YouTube and put in CityBet actually, and you can see some videos of just the platform, basically. Uh, similar groups who market make on Betfair are doing some market making on CityBet. There are some market makers who are exclusively CityBet. And if ever you're watching the screen, particularly on something like that, like, so if you want to do fixed odds Hong Kong Jockey Club stuff, so CityBet, you know, it's normally a tote pool, city bet you're betting fixed odds on Hong Kong. That money is kind of very concentrated, I suppose, coming out of Asia generally. And that's where that, that price is sort of circled around. Um, Betfair, you know, Betfair doesn't offer it. But then when you get something where they both Betfair and City Bet offers, like some, you know, standard mid-afternoon UK racing, you will see different money flows occurring across both exchanges. And anyone who wants to have a full, complete picture of what is going on, I suppose, in the marketplace at any given time, would probably need to be able to... It's going to filter in between the two. It's very hard for you to have a massive lump of money doing something on one and have no way for that ever to get across. But it, you can sort of watch it and it can sort of flicker between each other a bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, tons of money go through that, particularly for the Asian racing, anything where there is a large tote pool, Japanese, Hong Kong, et cetera, large tote pool market that you want to bet fixed odds into, you know, city bet's going to be the way to do that. Um, and yeah, there's some, there's Singapore, I think is where loosely you could say it's based. Um, but um, I seem to remember someone saying that some very smart, I think some of the real smart early market making style method, like, techniques and uh, software was originally built for Citibet, I think. So, um, so yeah, they're definitely, um, you, you'd expect, it's not going to be free money betting into Citibet, that's for certain. Um, so, yeah, so that's a little bit about it. I get, as I say, limited time, but that feels like, hopefully that answers a little bit of Nicole, you know, okay. desire for me to talk about it. I guess. And now Troy, the mad satirist, wants to know, what's the single, the single smartest thing you've seen a better or syndicate do in order to get an edge and improve their number? Single smartest thing. It sounds really boring, but uh, so there'll be conversations like among serious betters where they'll be like, okay, so we do this, 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 and then 
I mean, in an ideal world, we'd also do this, but that's a lot of effort. Don't know how we would do it. Don't know how we get the information, blah, blah, blah. Basically, everything that's really super smart just falls into grunt work that figures out how to do that thing that is like the step too far. So I remember someone saying that they wanted uh, a database, um, particularly darts and snooker. And it was a case of there wasn't a good repository, certainly at the time, of the data. And they wanted to know everything like, you know, checkout percentages and, you know, which checkout they went for in different times. And then snooker, they wanted to sort of almost have like stuff that they actually get computer vision or sort of computer visual scra scraping to do nowadays. But, you know, they very much wanted to sort of know ball position and snooker. Like, literally, they wanted everything on it, which is kind of strange in a way. It's not a huge market, really. And they outsourced, they managed to find a resource with a lot of tape. So I don't know whether they've got access to some sort of Sky or BBC database, but they got a huge amount of tape. And they paid a group in, inevitably the Philippines, so often this happens, um, basically to watch every single bit of tape and record every single piece of stat, you know. And like, is that particularly smart? And, and you know, at this point, they then had a completely perfect database of information that no one else had at that particular time when they were doing this. Um, and it'd be like, yeah, okay, um, that is that the smartest thing I've ever heard? It just, it's one of those things where everyone can conceive that that would be a sensible thing to do to get an edge, but actually just committing to it. It's like in the old days, I remember you see adverts in the RP, I don't know if you still do, but people wanting tape of greyhounds or tape of all sorts of things. And you could tell that people just wanted to go through a huge volume of, of tape um, to be able to just watch it. You know, the old the old racing watchers like get an edge by doing that. Um, old boxing, but old boxing it was very hard to get boxing fights all in one place. You know, and sometimes you couldn't get anything. And so boxing tape from around the world, like if you get HBO lower card and these kind of things, but that again, it just falls into grunt work that you know is right. So like something that's truly incredibly smart that, you know, no one has ever thought of doing before. I, I struggle, I struggle to think of um, something that sort of is in that category. Um, I mean, I think the drone stuff, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I think some of the, you know, the guy who first realized, you know, how to do the GPS of the horses on, you know, you know, for the drones over race courses. That that feels like something that someone would have said in the pub. Oh, you can't do that. And then someone said, well, has anyone ever actually tried? And then that guy went away and spoke to someone who knew about drones and they did it. And they're like, oh, it does work. And now we've got several seconds ahead on the in-running market. <laughs> like we're just making money hand over fist. Um, yeah, I would I would say that like, you know, you look at all the great stories like you know, I don't know, like Tony Bloom, Bill Bentner, Jelko, all these monster Billy Waters, you know, it, it's like, I do like, I do like the Billy Waters in that, you know, the, this idea that he would have several handicappers who report in with numbers and he would basically have an ensemble, or what we would call now an ensemble model, but basically, you know, an aggregate of all the numbers of the handicappers who reported into him. And originally that aggregated line that he had was just brilliant. He could just beat the market hand over fist. Then the market became very wise to sort of this large winner within their midst and became very skittish. And I think the smartest thing is that 
Billy Waters very quickly recognized the advantage to being Billy Waters to the extent that he had the entire Vegas market petrified of like, you know, yeah, Billy's on this game, Billy's definitely on this game. And, like, and so he basically found out that, you know, now he could just push the market wherever he wanted to. If he let it slip, that, you know, if he got a runner to sort of let it slip somehow that this was Billy's money, suddenly the market would move massively and he would have the other side. So I think he, he very much early on got the idea of being one man manipulation machine and just his very monetizing his reputation that way, I think um, that, that feels like a smart thing to do. And, uh, and yeah, um, yeah. Okay, this is the final question for this would be the penultimate part. I see, would like to know, what, what's your hierarchy, model men or pro punters? Mm, I don't know, can, can model men not be pro punters as well? Um, I, I think maybe I get, <laughs> A little bit what he means um undoubtedly when you have a model you can scale you may be blind to some very obvious i suppose human heuristic type elements within markets that the stats don't show up but by and large the best model men seem to be the ones who scale massively can automate what they do a lot and make a lot of money consequentially um do I think that people who are in charge of those kind of models are intrinsically smarter than the long-term successful pro punters who are based on intuition? No. Um, I think, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat and, and certainly in betting, betting world, that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't think that, like, I think there can be an element of, you know, the moment some you know group of punters talking like the moment some bloke goes i've built a model a model you know this must be you know now we're talking and i think i think that has gone a bit far the idea that there is um you know some guy i mean i see he's from ireland right um you know the idea that there can't be someone who goes to all the point to points you know goes to the yards goes around looks watches a million races in ireland the idea that that guy is like dumber than someone who builds a model for Irish racing. And to be honest, building a model for Irish racing is a real tease of an exercise, if ever there was one. Um, but yeah, the idea that that guy is like below the in the hierarchy of the model man, absolutely not. Um, it probably depends from sport to sport. Like model men in soccer, they're the probably high level soccer, probably got the advantage. Yeah, pro punters for lower level, lower liquid stuff, definitely got the edge on the model men and vice versa. There we go. Maybe that's it. Okay, Matthew. Now, um, Jose Ramon, I hope that's correct correct pronunciation of his surname. Uh, he says, are the decentralized spaces of the democratization of betting exchanges, automated market makers and prediction markets a serious threat to the traditional industry that also faces rigid compliance updates? So, in, do I think, I suppose, broadly speaking, you know, do I think that the traditional bookmaking industry is uh, under serious threat by anything? I would say no. Um, generally, I would say the only uh, threat that the bookmaking industry feels it's under is uh, increased uh, conformity around, you know, problem gambling and these kind of things and, and legislation and, and legalization in different jurisdictions. You know, I think uh, 
you know, the lawyers do more of the hard work in bookmakers now than almost anyone else. Um, so, but yes, uh, trying to sort of take this piece by piece. So decentralized spaces, um, I don't know how many really effective decentralized betting exchanges there are. For me, I think of basically betting as something where centralization works in terms of managing fixtures, resulting, all these kind of things. Um, so, you know, decentralization in terms of like from the crypto space is, is a very popular theme at the moment. But I think decentralizing your exchange, I think, to be honest, you know, having a tyrant at the top, making sure things run smoothly from the fixtures, you know, management, start times, grading, all these other things. I actually think you, you kind of need the, the central authority on that. Um, democratization of betting exchanges. I guess democratization in the sense that anyone can have, you know, everyone's on a level playing field, I guess, you know, no account closures or restrictions. Um, you know, that I, I, I hope that some of that, I always hope that some of that comes into, you know, I genuinely believe that, you know, setting market limits by, you know, by the event rather than by individuals and restricting them is, I, I think, is just wrong and it's not doesn't even optimize your earning potential. So, um, so yeah, so I hope some of that democratization filters into bookmaking at some point, but at the same time, um, betting exchanges, it's only feels like everyone's getting a great deal if there's sufficient money on the exchanges to bet with automated market makers and prediction markets. Um, you know, there's been various predictions, you know, predict it for, um, for the sort of the political betting markets so that has been, they sort of tend to get to a certain point and then peter out as there's only so many people that you can get interested in it as being a thing. You know, exchanges really, you know, Betfair grew, had good growth numbers and then hit this point where it became increasingly hard to attract new people to the concept, I suppose. Um, automated market makers, to be honest, I think some of the automated market makers will find themselves trying to get into the traditional industry more than um, wait for everyone to embrace decentralized spaces of the democratization of betting exchanges. But yeah, I, I, do I think they're a threat? It doesn't, it doesn't look that way to me currently, but I, I've been wrong many times. Okay, now Kieran would like to know, how do bookies price in play markets like team shots and shots on target? So I think generally everything has an expectation that you start before the match goes live. So you'll have an expected goals and expected shots generally that's associated with that expected goals, expected shots on targets associated with that, corners, etc. You're simply breaking the match up into chunks. Um, you know, I think once upon a time, a long time ago, the chunks were five-minute chunks. Now they're much more granular. Five minute, now we have five minute speed betting markets. So, you know, you'd have to break that down into more chunks. You can just have one price for five minutes. Um, so I think once you chunked it down into, chopped it down into little pieces, you find out what the expected goal shots, corners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are within that little chunk. And then, you know, as the game evolves, you may adjust your original expectancies. So, if you see a lot of shots, you might increase the shot expectancy 
from the start that then filters all the way down the timeline. So now you have increased expectancy across all the little chunks. Um, and yeah, those expectancies will have probability distributions and those probability distributions will set your under over, you know, 50, 50 lines. Um, yeah, I, you know, when you're, when you're modeling out these things, you know, you, you've got the time vector and you've got the inputs and um, yeah, a lot of it's just time decay and twiddling the initial inputs to mean that what you twiddle at the initial part filters through all the way through the game as it goes. Um, yeah, I don't know if I've answered that route very well. But. Well, you could maybe elaborate there. This is uh, Noleg. This is, um, could you explain the actual logistics of building an HR model in terms of input? All the inputs you've heard of uh, put into an HR algo, how many? what's too much, giving them weight, deciding how heavily to weight them, and so on, until it starts spitting out a tissue that could win. Lots in there, I know. Um, I, possibly, again, a, another plug, really, I suppose, for someone else. But if you look at the Smarter SIG um, website, uh, Mark Littlewood there, he has actually built a piece of software which um, is sort of my sports AI, I think. And you can see the list of, if you look at his blog, he, you know, and some videos, you can see the list of inputs he has there. Huge number of inputs. Because like, you know, when you, let's say you take something like trainer form, and let's say your trainer form is just the win percentage of us. Well, there's trainer form for the last three days, last five days, last, like parameter optimization, as it might be called, input parameter optimization is its own field before you even then model how those inputs generate outputs in a sense, you know? So, you know, it, there's no limit to the number of inputs. I think probably you can get, normally costs like some stupid amount on Amazon, but I think like an ebook of, is it CX Wong? I think who wrote like basically Bentner's initial uh, machine learning sort of exercise for horse racing. Um, and people always say that it's formatted terribly and the English barely makes any sense. But anyway, you know, the answer is, is logistics of building HR model in terms of input, just every piece of data you can get your hands on and not only every piece of data, but then splitting that data into every different time frame, um, every different, you know, you can have the actual metric, you can have its Z scores, so you can have its like number of standard deviations above or below the average. You can have that then distributed by a number of previous races, previous time, you know, because there's races back and then there's time back, which are two different things, particularly horse racing. Um, you know, how, like, so, so it's how many, just, just so many, um, what's too much. Um, I think in terms of when you're starting, there's probably nothing is too much, but I think you do get this situation whereby you'll have one or two factors that are like massively important. So, Let's say there's one, let's say you have one that's just like horse rating and then trainer rating, jockey rating, blah, 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 all these other things. It may be that what will happen is, is you'll build a model and it will tell you, you know what, how good the horse is, is pretty much where it's at. And the reality is, is that you can then sort of split the models. So what you can do is you can then take all the factors that aren't the horse's ability, and then you can train a model to find out, well, if we ignore the horse, what's the most important factors from here? And I remember, I remember somewhere reading that, like someone said, like above like five factors for prediction, you're just sort of adding noise. Um, so what you may boil it down to might be very limited in the end. Um, but like machine learning is not my, certainly not my area of expertise. 
Um, giving them weight, you've got to let XG boost, something like that. You've got, you know, you've got to let something like that decide how much weight to give them. And then, uh, so I'm just reading the question again. Giving them weight, deciding how heavily to win them, and so until it starts spitting out a tissue that could win. Well, you know, again, I, I would probably direct him to Mark Littlewood, who I think is at Smarter Sig on Twitter. You know, he's someone who's been betting uh, almost exclusively to bet for SP, I think, algorithmically using large machine learning data sets and horse racing for many, many years now. Um, bets a huge volume, like hundreds of bets a day. Um, and he will probably tell you. Um, more about that than I could. Um, but I definitely know that you know building these models can be done, is done, people are making money using them. And generally more is more when it comes to initial investigation. But after initial investigation, it does tend to boil down to a much slimmer model I have experienced. And the next couple of questions probably sort of tie in together. So I'll give them to you both. Does Matthew think that Betfair will remain the main exchange in 10 years time? And also, uh, that's from uh, Dennis O'Kelly. And Michael Verity would like to know your predictions for the betting landscape, how they will look in five to 10 years. So I'll lump them in together. Um, okay. Main, will Betfair remain the main exchange in 10 years' time? Um, very likely, if it exists. So I can never, at this point, right now, to maintain the exchange costs you know, a good amount of money. I never know if ever Flutter Group would decide it was worth pulling the plug on because they wanted to spend, I mean, they seem to have just near infinite money. I mean, they bought Sny recently, one of the largest Italian bookmakers. So, you know, um, you know, they, they, maybe they can just afford to run it just as long as it's making some money indefinitely. Um, but yeah, if it is, a, if it's around, I think it will still most likely in the UK be the dominant exchange. Um, what evolves possibly in America, et cetera. I don't know, but the only the only thing that I seems like the Matchbook project has stalled. Smarkets, I don't feel like you know it's directed its attention. Jason Tross seems to want to focus on America. They feel to have sort of plateaued a little bit in my mind in terms of liquidity and sort of critical mass. The interesting one is BetDAC. I mean, BetDAC has gone back into the hands of um, Dermot Desmond, I think, after it's sort of he's got this contract to buy back off Entain and for a pound or something and I think he has done so you know obviously a very wealthy man very smart man can he uh resurrect BetDAC or I say resurrect that implies it was ever the the one at any point but you know can he make it really kick on I think it requires so much like really good management team really good tech team like you have to put the kind of team together that would be so good at just launching something that makes money better, just another bookmaker even, that it would be like, is this worth the return I'm getting by investing in this? So I don't know. Um, and then where do I see the exchange in five to 10 years time? Well, so we're going through the great consolidation at the moment where legal and data costs are so large that it makes more sense to basically all bind together. So, you know, the, the flutter groups, the entains, et cetera. Um, I think once we've gone through that incredible, it seems, to, I, I say this because it seems to be the pattern across all industries that after you go through a period of mass sort of merger and acquisition, 
people then step back after a point and say, right, so now we know what the general beige middle point is. Where do I want to position myself to be sort of the, the alternative option? So I think I would say over the next, you know, five years, certainly, it's going to just get more and more homogenized. And if you can imagine that, you know, more and more people will just get bought up and brought into bigger and bigger groups. And then we'll see some bounce back after that. So maybe in five years time, we'll start to see, like a lot of people are thinking this time is now. I don't think the time is now for these alternative groups to really grab traction. I think the alternative time will be a more settled American market, a more legally well-organized European market. Maybe India has opened up. Maybe China, I say China. India definitely would, I think, within five years' time be opened up. Brazil's opening up. At that point, I think something would be like, okay, so we know what the general does it quite well thing is. Now, what's the alternative challenger idea to this? Um, so, yeah, so I, I would hope in five, in long time to wait, Michael, I'm afraid, but I hope in five years' time we might start to see some things that genuinely are like, oh, let's try doing it this way instead of the way we've always been doing it. Okay, right. The last few minutes. Um... Andrew Yates, you've already explained why you why you stopped doing the Inside Betting podcast, but is it still possible to access them anywhere? Um, I believe there is, and I'm not. You know, someone actually said to me, "You do realise that these podcasts are still available?" And it's, that's absolutely fine. You know, I'm. I just I took down my Anchor account, which is what I used for doing my podcasts. Um, but yeah, if you can find them out there, you know. Um, someone even, I think, maybe even replied to one of your tweets, I think, with the link to it. Um, but yeah, there definitely is places out there where they exist and, you know, enjoy if you, you know, please just, just whatever you do, please don't come back to me in years time and say, you know, you were really off on this because that would drive me mad. Okay, right. Just the last two from our, our first uh, uh, question poser, Fergie. I want to know what your current role in the industry is. Uh, current role in the industry is wearing a, a, a few hats at the moment, but I work for a group that's aspiring to build trading tools for bookmakers that will facilitate better market making style decisions and risk management decisions that don't involve restricting and closing customers. So people call this model various different things, but the, you know, the idea is, is that we will try and empower bookmakers, I guess, with ways to uh, do that bookmaking instead of the cut and shut, uh, try and monetize all customers and treat all customers equally for a better end result. Um, yeah, and so within that, I'm wearing a lot of hats, as I say, uh, but looking at how to build the software and what's the best way to do it. Um, okay, and that's what I find myself at the moment. Okay, and finally, uh, it's a bit of a tricky one, so I'm sure you don't actually give it out on this, but uh, he wants to know if you have an email or contact and would you be willing to share that for questions from other traders? Um, I found that the most successful way to keep in contact with people has actually been LinkedIn. Um, I get an awful lot of international business trade owners um, looking at me on LinkedIn. Um, I assume that I, I know that a lot of people don't want to disclose who they are on a LinkedIn account, but I have had people who've had fake names on LinkedIn, then direct message me and say, oh, by the way, my name's this. I was wondering if you would mind talking about blah, blah, blah. And uh, I'm, I'm open to that, like I say, um, you know, so that, that does seem to still be the best avenue to get in contact with me. 
if you don't already have my you know my mobile number um but yeah not not a huge fan of probably giving out uh, an email address at this point okay well you've given us an hour of your time matthew um so that's the end of that but very much appreciate your uh, your added input there and thanks to everybody that posed questions so uh matthew treno thank you very much thank you <laughs>